This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. Poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And the program is off and running for Sunday, September the 12th, 2010. I'm seated to my right. My co-pilot, whenever we venture into the uh, the realm of uh, UFOs, the disclosure movement, extraterrestrials, Victor Vigiani, the Media Relations Director for Exopolitics Canada. Hello, Victor. Once, welcome once again. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. And I have my hands firmly on the control arms and hoping that we don't have to get into uh, a collision avoidance uh, procedure later on this evening. That's all right. That's right. You take the helm and I'll go check out the beverage cart. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I got a lot of emails uh, uh, this week, actually, uh, mm-hmm. truthfully saying, you know, uh, here we are, September 12th, the day after the ninth anniversary of September 11th, and why aren't you talking about 9-11? Well, to me, uh, I mean, I talk about 9-11 many times throughout the year, and sometimes I don't happen to talk about it on the actual anniversary date. Uh, and it's it's like one of these, it's not, I, I hesitate to say this, use this analogy, but it's like Christmas in that I don't just celebrate Christmas on December the 25th, or at least go. I try to mm-hmm. carry it with me mm-hmm. more than... So the same thing applies to 9-11. So on May the 15th, we might have a 9-11 show, or on August the 27th, uh, if there's new information, etc. Just a, a, a word out to my listeners that we're expecting uh, something on 9-11 uh, tonight. Uh, of course, next year, the 10th anniversary, I can pretty much guarantee that we'll, uh, we'll go pillar to post on the program. And uh, we talk a lot about cover-ups and conspiracies on the show, obviously. Cover-ups. Well, that also applies to this field uh, when we're talking about UFOs. Many people suspect there is a, a, is a cover-up, a concerted effort to keep the lid on the truth uh, about the reality of UFOs and ETs, and we're going to discuss that in, in just a minute. A heads-up, though, at 12.30, we're going to check in with Jeff Peckman, uh, 
He is a uh, an American UFO disclosure activist, and a, he has been a political act, uh, candidate, I think, for the Natural Law Party down there in uh, Denver. Mm-hmm. And in November, a rather interesting uh, petition on the ballot down there that he has orchestrated. And they have 10,000 people signed on, I believe. That's what you need to get uh, something on the ballot. He wants to create an extraterrestrial affairs commission in Denver. So we'll talk to him uh, about that. First off, Leslie K- uh, Kane is uh, with us. She is a, uh, an investigative reporter and journalist. And uh, get a load of these credentials. Uh, she's uh, published in the Boston Globe, uh, the uh, Baltimore Sun, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Nation magazine, the International Herald Tribune, our very own Globe and Mail, the Sydney Morning Herald, the uh, Bangkok Post, the Kyoto Journal, and the Journal of Scientific Exploration. Her latest book is UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go On the Record. And it's a great pleasure to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Leslie Kane. Leslie, how are you? Very well, thanks, and it's great to be with you. And to say hello to uh, Victor Vigiani. Hello, Victor. Great to be with you, too. Hello, Leslie. I have to ask you, Leslie, whether there is a, uh, a risk uh, for someone who has uh, toiled in the vineyards of investigative uh, journalism for so many years. And I know, you, you know you've talked about UFOs before and written about them. Uh, but is, it, is there a calculated risk that you, that you take? Are you putting it on the line uh, in terms of, I guess, your, your reputation uh, with your colleagues or your readers when you decide, I'm going to dedicate an entire book about UFOs? Well, it wasn't actually so much with the book that I did that, uh, Richard, but back when I started this, looking into this subject, which was about 10 years ago, I was definitely concerned about that and went through a whole transition phase of feeling really nervous and insecure about it. By the time I'd gotten to writing this book, though, which I started, I guess, about eight years ago, I had done so much already on UFOs and published on it and spoken about it so much that I didn't have that concern at that point. But I certainly did at the beginning. So many people that I've talked to on this program that that come from some amazing uh, backgrounds. Uh, I think of historians like uh, Richard Dolan, who was practically a Rhodes Scholar. I think he missed it just barely, becoming a Rhodes Scholar. And uh, and uh, 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 people that have uh, studied at uh, very prestigious institutions or had careers as lawyers or yourself, an investigative journalist. And uh, what invariably happens with, with many of these people, and I don't know if this is your case, I'll ask you, but it, once they delve into this issue, they just can't let it go. It changes their life forever. Has that happened to you? You know, I would have to say it has. I really would. I mean, I, I understand what that is. And, when, you know, when I started looking into this, I was, I was pretty amazed by this French report that I received in the mail. But, um, and I can talk to you about that more later if you want. But, yeah, I, I looked into it more and more. And you get to a certain point where you sort of get to the oh-my-God point, where you realize, you know, there is actual factual government documents and all this information out there that, yes, you have to take time to sort out from all the invalid information, but it's there, and it's clear that there is something there called a UFO, and we haven't been able to explain what it is. And, you know, yeah, I mean, and you do. You get to a point, I got to a point, where I just could not let it go, as you say. And the interesting thing is that the more you learn about it, the more 
you realize its validity. It's not the other way around that, well, maybe if I explore these cases a little bit more, then we would figure out what they are. You know, it doesn't work that way. The more you look into it, the more you recognize the validity of it, and the more, I guess the word is hooked or, you know, involved you become. And I know that's happened for a lot of people, as you mentioned, and certainly it has happened to me, I have to say. I mean, I've always tried to keep a sort of objectivity, a certain objectivity from it, because I am very focused on covering this as a journalist with certain criteria and certain standards. So I'm very careful about what information I actually work with. But still in that process, there, there becomes, there, there is this feeling of not being able to let it go, absolutely. In the, uh, the first couple of, I guess, pages of the book, Leslie, you, you make a statement that uh, you say, you're, I'll quote you, that I'm not a believer in anything except a respect for the facts. Uh, even when they don't conform to our established worldview. There are a lot of people that are out there this evening who, I guess, maybe first-time listeners, whatever, you know, what is a UFO? My question to you would be, how do those facts and the way you look at them and the respect you have, how do those facts speak to you? You mean, the, now, but by the, the, those facts, you mean uh, the facts that are basically the way I see the UFO picture? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think what's important is to be clear about what we know and what we don't know about UFOs. And, yeah, I'm, what I'm not a believer about is what they actually are. I mean, I certainly have ideas about what I think they most likely are. But the bottom line is there is, I think it can be shown without a doubt, and I, I really, and so do the, the incredible people who have contributed to my book, which we should talk about, because it's not just my book. But the bottom line is that there is enough documentation to show that there is some kind of physical phenomenon present that, you know, has physical effects on aircraft that shows up on radar, that's, that's captured on photographic film, that leaves marks on the ground. It's physical, and, and it, it's mysterious, and it seems to demonstrate technological capabilities that we don't have. I mean, remarkable behaviors that are observed over and over again. And um, we have not yet satisfactorily explained to, to at least to the level in which the sort of general um, society can accept it, you know, the, the scientific community, the political establishment. We have not found an answer to this riddle yet. And um, that's sort of, that's, those are the facts, that's the way I sort of approach the subject and um, how, it, how it's affected me, and it has sort of changed my life in the way that Richard was alluding to. I mean, it becomes a sort of quest to try to get to the bottom of it and since I can't get to the bottom of it, obviously, I'm going to have to ask the people that can to do that for me. And that's what this book is doing. We're asking for something to happen that hasn't happened yet. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Victor Vigiani in studio, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Afraid of the Dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1 866 740 4740. Leslie Kane is with us, investigative journalist. UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. Let me just uh, read a couple of uh, adv- some of the advanced praise for the uh, the book on the back here. And this one uh, comes from a, uh, a professor at McGill University, the Department of Psychology. 
Don Donderry. If you don't know much about UFOs, you must read this book. If you think that UFO reports are nonsense, this book will disabuse you of that notion. Leslie Kane's UFO book could and should become the tipping point that leads to public acceptance of the reality of UFOs and all of its implications. And very quickly, one more from former CNN space and science correspondent Miles O'Brien. Uh, this might be my favorite. She may not have the final smoking gun, but I smell the gunpowder. <laughs> uh, Victor, do you want to lead us into uh, one of the the cases that's yeah. uh, outlined in the book? Yeah, I think one of the fascinating parts about uh, what Leslie has put together here is she's really put forward a chronology of some absolutely fascinating actual uh, UFO incidents. And I think it sort of behooves us to look at those more specifically because it does really tell us a whole lot about not only what UFO events are, are all about, but how officials react to them. And uh, I think it's really important. Leslie, do you want to start off with the O'Hare incident uh, back in November of 2006, I think it was, right? Yeah, it was actually it's exactly right, November of 2006. And um, that incident, I think, is a really, really important one because it shows some of the problems that we still face in terms of our government's response to UFO cases. And in this particular case, it was um, rush hour, afternoon rush hour at Chicago O'Hare Airport. And um, a, a number of United Airlines employees, quite a few, actually, observed this metallic-looking disc hovering over the United Airlines terminal is about 1,500 feet up. And pilots saw it, baggage claim people, managers, all kinds of people from United Airlines, and there was a buzz. They were all talking about it on the radios. They were calling up the tower. There was a real buzz going on there for at least five minutes, maybe longer. Then this thing was seen shooting straight up through the cloud bank above it and cutting a, a clean hole in the clouds, a perfect round hole with a sharp edge in the clouds. And um, again, uh, the government's response, and we haven't talked about this yet, but the government's response basically was to first of all ignore it, then when it was pressured further, and this was the FAA, to say that it was lights reflecting off the clouds, uh, it was the airport lights reflecting off the cloud bank, which it obviously wasn't, and actually we found out that the lights hadn't even been turned on at the time the event took place. So they had to give up on that one, and then the third thing was they said was that it was weather, and um, I called up the FAA and found out that the type of weather they were talking about, which was something called a hole-punch cloud, cannot even occur at above freezing temperatures, which is the, was the case that day at O'Hare Airport. The other important thing about this is that none of the witnesses were willing to go on the record, not one. And there were many witnesses, and they did... Some of them did file reports about it, and they talked to investigators, but they were not willing to put their names out. So it was a fascinating case. It shows two things. One, the fear that people have about talking about this, and two, the government's inane responses to it, both of which are completely irrational and, and serious problems that need to be changed. It, can we go further? Uh, maybe you won't be comfortable with this, but when I look at the FAA's reaction to something like this, I mean, the, their mandate is to investigate security breaches at American airports. And when you've got no fewer than a dozen uh, United Airlines employees, uh, including someone at the managerial level, you know, supposedly saying they witnessed this, and the the FAA first denies anything and then they blame it on the weather, and again, keeping in in, 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 in mind their mandate is to protect... Uh, you know the, the 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 security of these airports. To me, that that smells of of 
nothing less than a cover-up. Yeah, I mean, you have to make the argument, you know, that this is a safety issue, as you're pointing out. I mean, their job is to... This thing was hovering over an airport when planes were taking off and landing, and it, 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 um, there was no way that anybody could control what it did. Nobody knew what it was going to do from moment to moment. And, yeah, I mean, isn't it, you know, it's interesting. that You, may, you can call it a cover-up, but basically the FAA is actually not really covering up its disinterest in this because it actually says in the FAA manual that any UFO sightings made by pilots or anybody else are not to be reported to the FAA, even if they're life-threatening. It actually says that in black and white. Those sightings are to be reported to either New Fork or another agency, a Bigelow, you know, um, a, a space agency was set up by Bigelow. So they're basically telling their employees, we don't want to hear anything about anything, any UFOs that you see, even if they're life-threatening. What if that UFO turns out to be a Russian MiG? Exactly. You know, and that's, I guess they're assuming that, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is mind-boggling, really, when you, you think about it. You made a statement in the book, Leslie, you said that the uh, FAA will launch a you know, a, an investigation of a coffee pot falls off the uh, the shelf in the galley uh, and, you know, getting all kinds of people involved and finding out why that coffee pot uh, might have leapt off the shelf. But they won't ha- take the time to look at something that made a uh, hole in the clouds and was hovering there and 12 people see it. I mean, the uh, the contradictions right. there are just absolutely staggering. Yeah, it was John Hilkovich that made that comment, and he was the reporter for the Chicago Tribune who actually broke the story of this incident on the front page of the Chicago Tribune in January of 2007. And he was, you know, this is a guy who didn't know anything about UFOs. He was just investigating this as a transportation writer. And um, he was flabbergasted at the lack of interest by the FAA in terms of the safety hazards. And, in fact, most of the witnesses that talked to him emphasized that aspect of it. And he made that point about the coffee pot falling off. Any little thing that's threatening safety is always checked out, but not this. Hilkovich um, um, said that apparently there were photographs, possibly, uh, taken by a pilot uh, at the time with a digital camera. Did you find out whether or not there are, in fact, digital photographs? Well, as far as I know, there there have not been any legitimate ones that have surfaced, and it's interesting because when I have the transcript in the book, actually, of a, a, a call into the FAA tower by a United Air- Airlines manager, and she reported to the tower, there has been a photograph taken of this. This was actually during the event. And, um, we, you know, no photograph has ever surfaced that has been shown to be the real deal. So it's kind of a mystery as to what happened with these photographs. This O'Hare incident, as it turns out, and you mentioned Hilkovich with the Chicago Tribune, it is the most on, uh, it's, it's the most read story in Chicago Tribune's online uh, edition in history. Over a million hits they received on that story. Right. Yep, it was a big story, and of course, but then it passed in a couple of days, but it was a big story while it lasted. Did it not happen, Leslie, just maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, it occurred in November of 2006, but it really didn't hit the, the front pages or even television until January of 2007? Is that true? Yeah, I mean, that's true. There was about a two-month lapse, and it was partly because it took a while for the, the, the couple of witnesses that came forward that went to New Fork. It took them a while to contact New Fork to file their reports, then New Fork got the material to the Chicago Tribune. Then the Tribune reporter spent some time looking into the whole thing, you know, doing his own investigation, talking to people as best he could. Then there was the Christmas break. So it was sort of like a whole series of events that kind of pushed the whole thing forward. But I think part of it was that the reporter was doing his homework and really trying to find out what he could about it before he wrote about it. Hilkovich also talks about um, his findings that there are numerous serious 
researchers in universities in the United States that are attempting to do their own investigations of the UFO issue, and when they go to the government to try to get information, they get stonewalled. And uh, Hilkovich goes on to say how there is this universal feeling that the government knows more than it's willing to tell. Now, I find it interesting that you have uh, John Podesta writing the foreword to this book. Uh, Obviously, was um, very influential in the Clinton White House and was uh, part of the transition uh, team in the um, Obama administration. Are you? What do you? How do you feel about? John Podesta, I mean, earlier on he was, uh, he held a press conference saying, you know, it's, it's not only the right thing to do to release U.S. government documents about UFOs, but it's the law. And then we don't hear from him for a while. And, you know, there are those in the UFO research community who are really counting on John Podesta maybe to step up to the plate, and they would have liked to have heard from him again on this issue, and then now he's writing a forward to your book. What is your sense of where you know, where Podesta is on this issue. I mean, is, is, are we going to hear more from him again? Yeah, well, let me just clarify that. The only reason that you mentioned that Podesta, you said, held a press conference where he made that famous statement about the people's right to the truth. Actually, he was in, that was a press conference that my group gave, the Coalition for Freedom of Information. He was actually invited to speak at that. I mean, we asked him to come and speak at that press conference. So I think some people think, oh, he went out and he made this big statement on his own. That's really not the case. We asked him to come and, you know, and he was willing to support this initiative that I was involved in, which because it involved the Freedom of Information Act. So that was the context through which he made that statement. And really, his interest in this has been pretty much in support of this effort that I was involved with, which is a lot of there's a lot of information about it on the Freedom of Information uh, website, which involved a, a, a FOIA initiative to try to get more information about the Kecksburg UFO crash of 1965. This is something really independent of anything I've done in the book here. And he was, he's very interested in the people, you know, government openness. That's his big issue. And the Freedom of Information Act. He was responsible for a lot of reforms under Clinton in the Freedom of Information Act. So he's also a man who's very curious about UFOs. And so because of that, you know, he's been willing to step up and support this initiative that we've been involved with. And then he became interested in the lawsuit that I was involved in against NASA. But it's not like he's been sort of stepping out on his own and, and on some kind of a crusade to, to you know, get, make statements about the UFO issue per se, just so people understand the context by which he has come forward. And in terms of the forward to this book, I mean, you know, he's he's just been somebody who's sort of been supporting my work for a long time. And when I asked him to do this, and he understood what the book was about and all the other people that were contributing to it, he just agreed to do it. Well, maybe um, that's an important uh, point. Uh, maybe uh, people like Stephen Bassett uh, should take note, not to read too much into uh, uh, President Obama naming uh, Podesta uh, to uh, his transition team, that that wouldn't necessarily or isn't going to necessarily lead to uh, a disclosure statement. We'll uh, come back and discuss more with Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials. Go on the record, Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada in studio. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. It is time for the people of the United States to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness, and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. 
Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. That uh, clip we heard coming back was former Canadian Defense Minister Paul Hellyer at a, um, a speech he delivered at the University of Toronto. And uh, Victor Vigiani, my in-studio guest from Exopolitics Canada was, you were obviously instrumental in, uh, in bringing him to the U of T to make that pronouncement in the same way that Leslie Kane on the line uh, was responsible for John Podesta's statement uh, about, uh, about uh, you know, disclosure about UFOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leslie Kane is um, the author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. And that was an interesting uh, case study. We looked at the O'Hare uh, incident back in 2006. And uh, Victor, I know you want to uh, talk about the Hudson Valley sightings because this is interesting. An interesting case that it, it went on for so long. I think you know, beginning in about 1982, and always the same type of report. Something strange going on. Yeah, I, I think what, uh, it's it really imp- is important to have a look at these kinds of cases because it first of all did go on for so long, and so many significant people, both uh, in multiple sightings and over the years had different kinds of sightings of delta-shaped craft and everything. And uh, I, I want to ask Leslie, it, it, it's sort of comparable to the Belgian um, sort of UFO flap that went on previous to it, but uh, the way the people in, uh, in, in Belgium uh, sort of handled it, it was much different than the way the United States government did. Do you, you want to run by us exactly what this Hudson Valley incident uh, was, uh, some characteristics, and then how it was handled? Yeah, sure. I mean, it is very interesting to compare the two because they took place within just a few years of each other. The one in the Hudson Valley was in, started in around 83, 84, lasted a few years, and as you've mentioned, there were, it was mainly a delta-shaped craft, but there were some triangular ones observed. And basically, it was just people seeing these things over and over again, large groups of people pulling over on the side of the Taconic Parkway and in freeways and along reservoirs, and it was just this repeated event. And basically, nothing happened in terms of any kind of official response. Um, you know, local newspapers covered it, but uh, people were just sort of left on their own to deal with this kind of, you know, awesome and frightening to a lot of people event. And then about three, four, maybe four years later, starting in 89, we had this incredible wave that took place in Belgium. And a lot of similarities in that it was repeated over and over again. In Belgium, it was primarily a triangular craft. I'm sure you know people are familiar with this thing with the, a bright light on each of the three corners, which was often red. And this wave, again, over and over and over again, these things were seen by lots and lots of people. Many policemen, actually, and same thing in the Hudson Valley, many, many policemen were involved and filed reports. And But there's a really striking difference, and that is that in Belgium, the whole country mobilized to try to get to the bottom of this, these sightings. There was nothing secret about it. The Air Force launched an investigation. It worked with other branches of government. They also liaised on with a scientific group that took reports from people, collected data, volumes and volumes and volumes of data. So you have here you know, scientists working in conjunction with government. And the man who was in charge of that for Belgium, William de, uh, Wilfred de Brouwer, who is now a major general, actually wrote a chapter for my book about that, his own investigation of it and what happened. But he did absolutely everything he could to try and find out what was going on. 
And um, he held a press conference. He told people about the investigation. They shut. They sent F-16s up to try and, you know, get better a better vision of these things to capture them on radar. It was a concerted effort that was made public to try and identify them. And when you compare that to what happened to the Hudson Valley only a few years earlier in America, where the government just outright ignored the whole thing, it's a very interesting example to sort of show the difference between how European countries handle some these things versus how the American government handles them. Yeah, I, I guess what uh, the sum total of all of that is, is that basically, as you make the uh, the case in the book, that the witnesses in the United States, and there were many of them, just in reading the book, uh, I was astounded by the actual number of individual people who saw these things, you know, fire uh, fire department uh, chiefs and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I guess what the bottom line there is witnesses in the United States, they were just left all on their own to deal with this issue and, and deal with the, the totally anomalous thing that they saw in the sky with absolutely no support at all from anyone. That's absolutely right, and it's, it was really, you know, people are really, really affected by it. I'm sure you both have talked to many people who have witnessed these things, and it can have a very big effect on somebody and really change their life. Um, and you're right. I mean, they're left by themselves. They, you know, the, the culture thinks that, that, that these are ridiculous. They can't exist. They're often ridiculed by their friends. They don't want to talk to their friends about it, and they're just left on their own. And this is what happens with these cases. Same thing with the O'Hare witnesses we talked about earlier. I mean, that's a big consideration is what about the witnesses? You know, why should they be left on their own like this? And um, in other countries, you know, the witnesses are asked to file reports. They're asked for information, and especially pilots. Pilots are required to file reports about things like this, whereas in this country they're actually told by the FAA to take their reports somewhere else. So there's a really interesting, again, the contrast is really striking. Leslie, you're a a self-described agnostic on the UFO issue. Um, When you look at the Hudson Valley incidents over the course of a couple of years and you read the accounts, let me play skeptic for a moment. This sounds like it could be explained away by a stealth blimp. People talking about uh, hovering uh, too too slowly to be a plane, uh, silent, and yet uh, some accounts said they heard a strange humming sound. Why couldn't this have been a stealth blimp? Well, it's possible that some of the sightings could have been, Richard, but I think that's the kind of thing that you can find out about. I mean, if it was a stealth blimp, it's possible to find out. You know, I would think, I mean, I'm not an expert on stealth blimps, but my understanding of this case is that all those avenues were pursued to try and find out what these things actually were. And, you know, that there were records that there were ways to to track them. And um, they were seen so many times that, you know, to explain it away as a stealth blimp, or some people said it was planes flying in formation, there are usually characteristics that don't apply to the particular explanation that's being given. And people are very clear about what it looks like. It doesn't look like a stealth blimp. You can go look up what a stealth blimp would look like. So, you know, when something happens repeatedly like this, I think it's much harder to sort of blame it on something like that, or, or not blame it, but, you know, ascribe every single sighting to one particular thing like that. It's, a hard, it's easier to do that when you have just one event, which most UFO sightings are. But when you get these waves of repeated sightings of, of similar or, ver- or even the same craft coming back and forth, you know, it's, it's much harder to just explain it away as one particular thing. When you keep on uh, seeing the recurrence of, uh, I guess, in the Hudson Valley cases, I guess is a good example, 
But then when you see this kind of thing happening, not just with Hudson Valley, but with the Phoenix Lights and even the Stephenville Lights, and we've been around long enough to know that there's so many things that have happened, as you say, on a recurring basis, and where people, as I said earlier, are just left to deal with this on their own. There's no, uh, no official reporting done on it at all. When that kind of thing keeps on happening in a democracy, and the people... I guess who see these things, their lives are changed, and that happens often enough. And I mean, we don't know some of the this the horrendous situations that may have happened that w- that aren't reported. W- would you comment on the the, the, the sort of the, the psychological effect that that can have on a cumulative basis to to, to a culture that's just been uh, inundated by the stuff but uh, has no support? What are the psychological implications of that? You mean in a bigger sense? I mean, you know, yeah, I, yeah. certainly, I mean, I certainly know it, it builds up a lot of mistrust. I mean, that's for sure. I mean, I know witnesses that, you know, have been, I mean, you could probably use the word traumatized, you know, that these, these sightings, mm-hmm. these events, especially when they're very close to something like this, have a lasting effect on them. So they're certainly individually, psychologically affected by it. And then when you have, you know, this, as you said, I mean, you have a whole body of, of an event. You have this event that repeatedly occurs that the culture is in total denial about. It's kind of crazy-making on a psychological level, and I think it builds up a tremendous amount of distrust in government and distrust in officials and in authority, and people are, you know, forced to sort of fend for themselves, and um, it can even be, I mean, some people, some military people have even said to me that it can even be a national security problem when people have extreme mistrust in the government. I mean, that alone can be a national security problem. So it has a lot of ramifications when you have government denying the existence of something that we ask that actually does exist. Would I mean, you, that makes people feel yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. Would you imagine, just for a moment, uh, I guess maybe I'm playing skeptic here, I'm not sure, but if there is a concerted effort, an orchestrated effort to utilize that psychological factor on the millions of people that have uh, witnessed this kind of thing, would that silence or would the silence and the secrecy and everything that surrounds how the government responds to these kinds of events, they just don't respond, would there in your mind in any kind of speculative way be a, a motive for this type of dumbing down of any of everything and letting people go crazy because of this and then all of a sudden this mistrust just builds up and people just disregard it altogether is that an ultimate goal of what's going on here well i mean of course i can't answer that because it's as you said it's speculative and i i'm so bad at speculating i'm always disappointing people because i'm not a good speculator and i you know i'm so focused on just sort of the factual data so i mean i i just don't know i mean i i tend to stay away from that kind of I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think there is some kind of concerted effort to make people behave some way psychologically and that that's the goal. I mean, I don't normally think like that. That's not to say mm-hmm. that you may not be right, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen any evidence of that. But again, if it's something very, very secretive, you wouldn't see the evidence for it. Yeah, I, so I, I think, you know, mm-hmm. we know what's actually going on. I think the why of it, of it, the why questions and the motivations behind all of this are much harder to pinpoint. And I just don't feel like I'm really qualified. I mean, I know, you know, that the government is doing things that it says it's not doing, and it says mm-hmm. it's not doing things that it is doing, and it's withholding information, and all the things that we know, and it's ignoring this. But beyond that, it's 
hard for me to go much further than that. I'm sorry. Stay with us. Leslie Kane rejoins us after this timeout. UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. Victor Vigiani in studio from Exopolitics Canada. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, live from AM740 here in Toronto. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Just a reminder, uh, coming up in uh, just under an hour, Victor and I will welcome UFO researcher Jeff Heckman, an American UFO disclosure activist who um, actually has placed something rather controversial on the... uh, the agenda for the upcoming municipal election in Denver, and that is the creation of an extraterrestrial affairs commission. Uh, I suspect that uh, Leslie Kane would uh, think that that's jumping ahead a little too far. <laughs> she wouldn't be comfortable with that, probably. Uh, however, Leslie Kane is with us, investigative journalist, UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials uh, go on the record. Uh, a self-described agnostic on the UFO issue, uh, yet quite certain after her research that UFOs are real. What exactly they are, where do they come from, that's another question. Um, we want to uh, get into another uh, a case here, Victor, and that's... We're coming up on the 30th anniversary of what's often described as Britain's Roswell, and that would be the uh, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident taking place at a a U.S. Air Force Base, some dis- some discussion, disagreement as to whether that was, in fact, a nuclear um, Air Force Base, mm-hmm. which some researchers say is, is important because that might explain why a UFO would, in fact, be interested in that particular uh, UFO, um, or uh, that particular U.S. Air Force Base. But uh, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting case. Yeah, they do have a tendency to uh, sometimes bother nuclear installations. What I'd like to do, Leslie, and I think this is probably one of the most chilling events um, in the sequence of events at uh, Rendlesham Forest, uh, and that's the testimony of Sergeant James Penniston, who uh, was in the forest that evening and actually saw the 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 craft and um, approached it. Uh, Do you want to walk us through that incident? I think it's uh, it's it's one that people should hear about. Sure, and I'd just like to also mention that James Penniston actually wrote his own piece about this incident for the, my book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government, official on the record. So you, you read about it in his own words and hear a lot of emotion in what he's written. Chapter 18, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's one of those witnesses that has really been affected by what happened to him. And not surprising, he was only 25 years old, and he was, called, he was on the security team at the base and was called into the forest uh, because they thought something, a, a plane had crashed or something had come down. And he ended up, as you said, approaching this landed object. It was a triangular object, as he described it, with kind of light swirling around it, sitting in the forest. And um, he actually got close enough to it to actually touch it, which is pretty amazing. He drew pictures of it in his... He had a log book with him. He made notes about it, drew pictures of it. He actually took photographs of it with a camera. And he discovered these symbols on the thing, which he calls sort of looked like hieroglyphics, and he actually drew in his notebook exactly what those looked like and spent about 45 minutes examining this thing with another person with him, uh, a guy named Burroughs, Jim Burroughs, who maybe that wasn't his first name, but um, John Burroughs. John, yes. 
Yeah, and a third guy was sort of stationed a little bit behind them, relaying messages back through his radio to headquarters. They were in constant communication about all of this. So, yeah, and then they watched this thing take off, and it kind of maneuvered through the trees, you know, almost as if certainly it looked as if it was under intelligent control because it maneuvered around without making any noise, avoiding hitting the trees, and then suddenly just shot off at the blink of an eye. And and Jim wrote in his logbook, he was so fast that he wrote Speed Impossible in his book. He was just astonished by this whole thing and went back to the base. And then the next day, they came back to the site and found all kinds of physical evidence uh, there where the thing had landed, three holes in the ground at the corners of it, branches that had broken off, burn marks on the trees, and radiation that was could be detected in the right there at the landing site. So... This is a, as you said, I think the this whole case is one of the most extraordinary cases we have. And of course, this was only one night. There was other uh, other nights where other things happened, but um, his story is really, really powerful to read. I have to say, because he was so close to this UFO and actually touched it. Yeah, when I read the uh, the account, when uh, when I read Jim's account of it, and I've also heard him speak about it too. Uh, mm-hmm. And the very first time I I saw him actually talk about it, uh, he was visibly shaken. And, uh, you know, when someone is is that shaken, they, there's the sweat on the top of the lip. And, and uh, uh, just sort of um, for moments, for seconds during the, the whole explanation of what he went through, it's almost like he was out of, out of touch with reality at certain points in time, both when he was talking about it and when he went through it. And, you know, it's sort of the, the, the other side of the coin of how these things affect you. Mm-hmm. And I think he was he was very very uh, physically affected by by the by the entire event, and also too at the time he was he was you know madly as you said writing down all these uh, symbols and trying to draw pictures and and just get a handle on exactly what happened at the time. Am I really seeing this? Is this really going on? Is absolutely that's you know, why when he went back to the site too, he was just so happy to have found all this physical evidence, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. <laughs> because it's like okay, it really did happen. I mean, you you. Even though you see these things with your own eyes, I guess a lot of people, you still are going to doubt it because it's just not supposed to happen. And um, I agree with you. He was very, very strongly affected by this and still is to this day. As, a, as an investigative uh, journalist, uh, Leslie, when, when you come across these stories that are seemingly so fantastical like, that, that most people wouldn't even consider uh, them to be you know, reality or, or a possibility, how is a, a journalist? I mean, what rigors of, of investigative journalism, what, what, what sort of rules do you employ to, to determine whether a Penniston or a Colonel Halt or uh, one of these witnesses is the real article, genuine, and, and, and is to be believed? Well, it's a really, really good question, and it's tough. It's tough to do that, but um, the, you know, basically what, you have, what I do and what you have to do, I think, is to look at the totality of the case you have to look at how many witnesses there are, how many other people saw it, whether people can corroborate what, let's say Jim Penniston as an example, what, whether they can corroborate what he says he saw, what he, you know, is there documentation such as his notebook, which still exists. There's all kinds of other stuff in this case, such as reports that were filed. Uh, Jim actually filed a report with the OSI. He made drawings for the OSA. All of this stuff is now available. There are a lot of written records. So, I mean, it's very, very important. I agree with you. It's not just about accepting somebody's story. And, of course, the fact that they're military people is important. 
and the rank of somebody is important. Certainly the fact that Colonel Holt is a, is a colonel is important, but you've got to be able to back it up with, with lots of other information. And in this case, you have that information as far as I'm concerned because there were so many people involved and there's, there's such a strong written record of it, as, long, as well as all the physical evidence that we had at the landing site and the MOD's involvement in the whole thing. It's very, very well documented. So that's the kind of information I need. I mean, if somebody just came forward and told me an interesting story about seeing a UFO on the ground and touching it and everything, I could, I could never make use of that and would never report on it if there wasn't the kind of information that um, I've described that there is for this case. It's very important. All right, Leslie, uh, stay put. We'll uh, get back to our discussion on UFOs and uh, certain government officials and generals, etc., that have gone on the record on this issue. Will this book, in fact, be the tipping point that leads to a public acceptance of the reality of UFOs? Well, there's only one way to find out. Go out, I guess, buy the book and, and decide for yourself. And I'll also point out the website, ufosontherecord.com. ufosontherecord.com. Back with more of our discussion with Leslie Kane when The Conspiracy Show continues. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Leslie Kane stays with us. Her book is UFOs. Generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. And it's uh, interesting to note the foreword written by John Podesta, head of the uh, Obama transition team during the, uh, the last election. Victor Vigiani joins us in the studio. And uh, we'll talk to uh, some of the government officials, we'll talk about some of the government officials that are mentioned in the book, uh, one in particular, a, a governor, uh, that is uh, attached to... Uh, one of the most significant UFO incidents, um, probably second only after Roswell, I would say. Uh, but there is another one that didn't make it into the book, uh, Victor. Yeah, I was wondering, Leslie, it, it sort of uh, a parallel question to what uh, was asked earlier. It, the Stephenville light situation, um, was there a reason why that did not sort of become part of the uh, of the uh, of the book, or were there extenuating circumstances, or just a matter of you can only include so much? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, really, the bottom line, I think, is because it happened while I was actually already writing the book, and I didn't even, I really was so focused on the book that I was writing and then putting together that I didn't have the opportunity to really yeah, spend time it. with that case. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing is that there were no, I mean, the book is focused on bringing forward, you know, military people and government officials and so on. I didn't have anybody like that. I don't think there was anybody like that from this case that really had come forward. That was the other thing. Mm-hmm. But I remember when the whole thing was unfolding and I was just, I remember um, James Fox was going there and, you know, it was a big deal, but mm-hmm. I didn't have the, the time to actually break from what I was doing. And at that point, the book had all been, you know, the whole the format of the book had already been set in motion and I had the publisher lined up and we had sort of a plan that was already, you know, being uh, put together by me. So 
it wouldn't have been possible for me to really jump off and do do a whole new case. Yeah. January 2008, small right. town in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, mass sighting. People describe uh, a craft. Some in some instances, it's like a, a Walmart, you know, hovering silently above them, or even greater, you know, a, a mile wide uh, wingspan, yeah. and then seen hovering in the direction of the uh, Crawford Ranch, which was, of course, the That's resident right. of yeah. uh, or the residence of. Uh, President Bush. I guess you can only include so much. That's right. Yeah, I mean, at that point, I, I just couldn't. I had no choice. Mm-hmm. But January 08, I mean, well, was that when it happened January 08. Yeah, so I guess that was towards the beginning of when I was actually writing the book, but I'd already, you know, really laid the whole structure of it yeah. out. And I was working so hard to meet various deadlines along the way that, you know, it was just the way it was. I had to stick with what I had. You've got one sighting that I... <laughs> an event by one Captain Julio Miguel Guerrera um, mm-hmm. in the Portuguese Air Force. Um, was that the one, correct me now, where he was flying along and the, the UFO made some elliptical circles around the aircraft? Was yeah, it, that's the, the one. It's fascinating. Really bizarre. Oh, completely fascinating. Yeah, and so unusual. I mean, I've, I haven't read a lot of about a lot of cases like that, but he was actually, he was in one plane and there were, t- I mean, initially he saw this thing by himself, but two other Two other pilots came to the scene in a second plane. They were in these small things called chipmunks. Mm-hmm. And so there were three of them that were involved with this. And, the, and the, what happened was the thing was going in this elliptical orbit. And when it, it, would, it would go and then it would come back and f- the two planes were just sort of circling in one area. And the, the thing would come and fly right between the two planes and then go back out into this wide orbit and then come back and fly between them again. And so, you know, they really got a good look at it, and they were able to estimate the size of the thing because it was flying right between the two aircraft, and they could sort of measure it against the size of the plane. So, yeah, very, very strange yeah, thing. At, and it, yeah, uh, and it, yeah, in one point in the description, he was talking about he was in the center of this elliptical orbit, the, the, the one initial pilot that saw it, and then right. as the other chipmunk approached, they were on the outside of the circle and watching this whole really strange, bizarre scenario unfold where this UFO was circling one plane, and they were sitting there, I guess, flying in, in, in some sort of fashion, uh, watching this, this uh, situation unfold. Right. That's sort of what I meant when it was like coming between them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was going around the circle of this one plane, if you want to put it that way, and the other plane was yeah. on the other, other side of the circle. So they were looking at it from two different vantage points, and then eventually this, this pilot, Gara, who wrote the piece in the book about, you know, wrote it again in his own words about what happened, tried to intercept it. I mean, I, I'm just sort of amazed that he wasn't afraid. He just didn't seem to really have much fear about this thing. Mm-hmm. He actually decided to try to intercept it, which meant he was he t- headed, headed right along its path. Yeah. And, you know, so that if it had, it could have just collided with him, but it, it kind of went above his plane. He describes feeling you know, this thing was just hovering right above his plane. I mean, it's really kind of harrowing. <laughs> but uh, he didn't seem to be, he was more curious than he was afraid. Yeah which I thought was really interesting. I mean, each one of the reports in the book are so different yeah. because the, the individuals react very differently to... Um, I mean, there's a lot of similarities in what they report, but I, I really was hoping, and I think it does, I think their individual responses and reactions are very interesting. They come through very well in what they've written, the which, Peruvi- which is one of the things that's so interesting about yeah. reading their pieces. Of course, the Peruvian pilot that uh, that you talked about, too, he went. He was very aggressive, and he was actually told to go and intercept this thing, where he actually shot at it, and with no effect. Absolutely, yeah. That was um, Oscar Santa Maria from mm-hmm. Peru, and it, again, he's written his own. I didn't. I don't talk about it. He talks about it in mm-hmm. the book, um, and he. It's, it's 
again, yeah, I mean, a really, really amazing situation where he was instructed. He was a, a very accomplished pilot at the time. and was in, This thing was seen over a, a um, military base in Peru by probably a thousand men. I mean, everybody at the base saw it, this bright thing that was hovering there. And he was sent up because they thought it was some kind of spy device. And um, it wasn't responding to any communications. It didn't seem to have a transponder. And they just said, look, you got to go shoot this thing down. It seems a little bizarre to me. That, and I kept asking him, well, you know, why would they want to shoot it down? But apparently that's what they would do when they thought it was some kind of spy device. And um, he, when he, you know, he actually did shoot large shells actually at the object. The way he describes it, it seemed to sort of absorb the shells. It didn't have any effect on the thing at all. And he said... Any anything, any airplane or any kind of device would normally have been completely destroyed by what he did to it. And this thing was unaffected, and then he got involved in this sort of cat-and-mouse kind of chase of this disc-shaped object and eventually got a very close look at it and realized after a while this was not some kind of spy balloon. It was actually what he called a UFO, something unidentified. So that's another interesting story. Yeah, I think one that's even probably more complex and it's uh, and the way it plays out is the Tehran uh, incident in 1976, was it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that to me is probably one of the penultimate situations where engagement really shows what these craft can do and not do. Um, our craft, I mean, uh, to try to pursue these things when the uh, the avionics actually shut right down. And I think the pilots there underwent some extremely bizarre things. You want to run that one by us, too? Yeah. If I you mean, could, this, please. I mean, this pilot named Parvis Jafari, who was an, who's now a general, actually, in Iran, um, was sent up, again, to sort of check out this large star-like, big, big gigantic, bright thing over Tehran. And um, as you said, I mean, he, he was looking, you know, he went up, the, up there just to observe this thing, really. They, they were not telling him to shoot it down like they had in Peru with the other pilot. They just wanted him to try to figure out, see if he can get a better look at it, maybe to identify it. And he started to see these projectiles, the way he describes it, these spheres kind of coming out of this larger, brilliant strobe, kind of the way he described it was like a huge strobe light object. And they started heading right for his craft, these smaller objects. And as you said, he he was all set to fire at them in self-defense. He had his heat-seeking missile actually set right on the object, and just at the moment when he was about to fire, he would lose control of his equipment. It worked fine until just before he pressed the button. And that happened three or four times. So it wasn't just a coincidence. It seemed as if somehow, whatever it was, you know, the phenomenon that he was dealing with, somehow, quotes, knew when he was about to press that button and the equipment was disabled. And um, that was a very bizarre situation, as you said. Also had a very lasting effect on him. The mass UFO sighting in uh, in and around uh, Phoenix in 1997, and uh, here was a situation where we had the uh, the governor at the time, Fife Symington, holding a uh, a press conference and uh, essentially insulting the uh, the witnesses at the time by making a joke out of the big uh, out of the whole thing and saying we've caught the culprit and they brought out uh, uh, somebody wearing a uh, an alien suit. Uh, and then, sometime later, Five Symington actually went on the record and admitted that he had seen this phenomena as well, was uh, was shaken by it. Uh, uh, tell me about the, uh, the the uh, the the chapter in the book dealing with uh, with Five Symington. 
Yeah, okay. Well, and what you've said is basically the uh, absolutely correct, and that's the story. That's his, uh, what happened to him initially. I mean, he was the governor when he actually saw this thing, and he decided at the time that he saw it not to talk about it. And um, as you said, too, he gave this, did this press conference that he called his spoof press conference. He says he was, he's the way he explained it later, and again, this was 10 years later, um, was that he really, there was so much hysteria building in the state of Arizona about this incident that he wanted to add a little levity to the situation and sort of shift the mood a bit. And he was really kind of at his wit's end. He didn't know what to do about it. You know, again, it was a situation where there was no help from the federal government. There was no response from anybody about, you know, and he, he was the state governor, so he it was all left in his hands. And, you know, I, I understand that a lot of people were upset by it for good reason. And what happened was, Ten years later, around the anniversary of the event, he decided that he didn't want to keep it secret anymore. He was no longer in public office. Not, you know, he had no reason to withhold this, and he felt he really wanted to make amends to the his constituents who were upset by what he did. So, inspired by James Fox's movie Out of the Blue, which he viewed right before deciding to come forward, um, he just gave an interview to James Fox in which he just came out with this information about having witnessed this thing himself. And um, ever since has been a vocal, um, you know, advocate for change in government. And is, he speaks a lot in the book. We we filled a lot of detail out about why he did what he did, why he changed his mind, what he thinks about it, what he thinks should happen. And he makes the statement that he would not want another governor to go through what he went through and that the laws in place dealing with this issue, which are basically no laws really, are just, um, you know, need to be changed. I mean, they're not effective. And um, he was somebody who has experienced this directly. That's why I think he has a really important role to play in all of this. As a governor, he experienced why this the situation we have now just simply doesn't work and what the problems are. He experienced it both as a witness and as a political figure. So I think he has a very unique um, contribution to make, and he's very committed to helping move the issue forward politically and did try he, to create change. Did he reveal... Uh, whether or not while governor, in the immediate aftermath of the Phoenix Lights sighting, to what extent he attempted to get to the truth, whether it was picking up the phone and calling um, a general at an Air Force base or someone at the FAA, or or, uh, did he try to get to the bottom of the truth? He did, actually. He did exactly what you said. I mean, he made those phone calls. He went to the Air Force Base, the local Air Force Base. You know, he called up people that he knew that were in positions of power. That would, you know, I mean, I actually have in the book exactly what the agencies were and who he contacted. I don't know off the top of my head, but they were the people that would have been the ones, you know, that would have been able to help him out. And what he says was that they were as baffled about this as he was. These, the, the people in, you know, at the Air Force bases and, you know, who would have been operating the radar or whatever kind of agency should have known about this, you know, didn't. They just didn't have answers for him. For, and um, that's what he discovered when he tried to find out. For those in the various, I mean, in, in the various UFO camps, and you can't, uh, you can't uh, call it the UFO community. I mean, there are those uh, who are... Um, simply interested in, 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 in reporting sightings and cataloging uh, the details of those sightings. And then there are other sort of off and other camps that are perhaps, uh, uh, well, you know, elements of the disclosure movement who believe that, uh, you know, ETs are 
involved with government dis- you mean, you've heard all of these I've various I've heard it all I think I have But yeah. for for those who who believe that elected officials know more than they're letting on or that are part of this overall cover up after having sp- spoken to government officials and elected officials because there is a distinction an important distinction but what would you say to those people that that think that that uh, maybe you know governors or presidents are part of the cover up I mean, I have never seen any evidence for that. I can't claim that I know for sure, but the, the officials that I've spoken to um, have not given me any idea that that's the case. And someone like John Podesta, for instance, I mean, he is, does not possess some kind of secret inside information about UFOs, and he's not having, you know, breakfast meetings with President Obama to discuss it. I mean, I just think there is way too much read into uh, these people that, you know, if they express some small interest in this, let's say, or the curiosity, and are willing to make a statement about it, there just seems to be a lot of that's read into it. So I don't think all this kind of knowledge going on among these people, and I don't think they think about it very much, quite honestly, because they're busy with all the things they have to deal with as political people. Um, And, you know, people responsible for these huge issues that they're dealing with in Washington. So I tend to, you know, my position is that you just can't. You don't want to assume and read things into these people because I've never. I just have never. I don't think up going on consciously in people that are running the government right now. I can accept that uh, they may not um, be engaged in a cover up. At least the elected officials, um, because I think you know, by and large, they're in the dark on many issues. Uh, you know, there is sort of a permanent. I'm not going to use the word shadow government, but there is a, per, a permanent bureaucracy. And uh, sometimes, let's be blunt, that it's not in their best interest uh, for elected officials to know certain things. But what I find troubling is that if you look at the UFO issue strictly from a national security issue, and we mentioned the incident in, o- in O'Hare, you would think uh, that they would be talking about this a lot more, uh, maybe even. In the, in the White House, if in fact, you know, we're talking about these breaches of, of U.S. Uh, airspace and with nobody seeming to have any, you know, explanation, I would think that they should be talking about this a, a great deal. Yeah, well, certainly in the aviation community, you would think they would be, as after the incident in O'Hare, as an example. But on the other hand, you know, the, the, the really well-documented cases don't occur that often, if you think about it. So, yeah, there might be some discussions about it. I mean, I don't know. Again, we're, it's all speculation here, but perhaps when the uh, hair incident occurred, there were some discussions about it at high levels in the FAA. Who knows? But we haven't had another event like that since. We had Stevensville, of course, but it didn't involve an airport. So, I don't know. It may be that different, different branches of government get involved with different cases, and maybe they discuss it. But I also feel, you know, they probably don't know what to do about it. They probably don't know a lot about these events. And you know, and they're baffled by it, and would rather it just go away, you know. But again, all I know is what you know, what I do know from the record, and a lot of the rest of it is just my opinion. Versus, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm any more qualified to be speculative about it than anybody else is. So, <laughs> all right, back with more of the conspiracy show after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. 
We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. Don't turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers and brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders, by our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Uh, Jeff Peckman from Denver. Rather interesting initiative on the ballot there in November. The formation of an ETA commission, an extraterrestrial affairs a commission. We'll uh, find out how Leslie Kane feels about that in just a moment. Uh, we mentioned uh, former Arizona Governor, Governor Fife Symington. I'm just reading uh, this online, a uh, flashback to October 2007, when former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson was seeking the Democratic nomination for president, and uh, he was at a town hall meeting and was asked by a, uh, a Dell employee about the 1947 incident, Roswell, of course, um, which landed near the eastern New Mexico town, And uh, Richardson said, I've been in government a long time. I've been in the cabinet. I've been in the Congress. And I've always felt that the government doesn't tell the truth as much as it should on a lot of issues. When I was in Congress, I said to the Department of Defense, what is the data? What is the data you have? And he was told that records were classified. That ticked me off, he said. And the crowd laughed. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to open up all those files? He asked the alien enthusiast who answered that he did. To which Richardson replied, I'll work with you on that. So who knows how uh, uh, things might have been different had uh, Bill Richardson been given the Democratic nod for president and been elected. Maybe he would have been the disclosure president. Victor? We could have um, had something happen there in a big way, too. Uh, Yeah. Um, I want to spend the last few minutes, um, Leslie, not talking about events necessarily, but I think um, alluding to some of the things that you get at towards the the end of your book, and, and I guess what I could sum up very quickly by saying, finding a healthy solution to this entire problem. And one of your suggestions, and you go through um, some very uh, clear descriptions of what you'd like to see in the development of some type of agency within the American government that takes in this information and deals with it rationally. And I think you also mentioned the idea of taboo and removing the taboo and developing a different language uh, a mindset and how to deal with this and once that's taken away all those taboos that people in office can find a safe space in which to operate uh, within this issue and from beyond it too so I'm not sure where you want to start in the description of where you're heading with that suggestion of an agency um, do you want to talk a bit about that with us? Sure, I mean I can actually be very specific about it because I think yeah, the, the results that you're talking about are going to take time but I think that if we did set up within the U.S. government a small office, I mean, even an a- the word agency might be too big a word, actually. But, uh, you know, it's sort of modeled after the situation in France, where there is an office somewhere which has at least one staff person 
and the purpose of this office is to investigate UFO incidences when they come up. And this would mean, for example, that for O'Hare, there would have been an agency in place that could have immediately gotten onto that case and done the proper investigation. That would be one of its functions, is to be prepared to investigate. The, the case is worthy of investigation. This doesn't mean every single time, you know, Joe on the street sees lights in the sky, you're going to send out the government agency to do it. Mm-hmm. But there are going to be certain cases which certainly would demand an investigation, and you'd have a, a, a person ready as a focal point. It would be like an official focal point so that action could be taken right away, the proper information could be acquired right away, and this official would have access to all of that information and could file some kind of report and do an investigation that could be made public. I mean, this would be the ideal scenario. And other countries have been doing just this for many years. The other purpose of this agency would be for the person there to liaison with other agencies like this one, which, as I mentioned, already exists around the world, and, um, you know, there could be a network set up, and the United States would just be part of that international network. And the way we see this is, and of course, it would also work on the release of information and government openness and all the things that we're so concerned about. And I think it's important, too, that it have a civilian board, a volunteer board that would be overseeing the agency, which could be composed of retired military people, scientists, people qualified to be monitoring this agency and actually be helping to educate the staff there and making sure that the information is all kept above board and made public and, um, you know, provide knowledge really into the agency so there's some oversight. How would that differ from Project Blue Book? Uh, I mean, didn't they do try to go down that road for about 18 years? Well, as far as I mean, as far as I'm aware, there was no board that sort of managed them. I mean, they were, you know, they were very much within the Air Force. They did not have a mandate to be, I mean, you know, yeah, on the surface they were supposed to be open about everything, but obviously they weren't, and they were ridiculing cases. I mean, the way we envision this is there would be so much control and input coming into it. It would be a very, very different kind of operation. And we're just having faith that, you know, that such a thing could be set up and that there would be the proper oversight for it from outside, from outside the government. But unless you have an official focal point for this, you're never going to get access to the right kind of information when you want to do an investigation. That's just the bottom line. You know, if a civilian group wants to get access to information, they've got to go through the FOIA and spend six months and probably not get anything. So you've got to find some way of having an official person that can, can, can handle these things in the proper way, not like Project Blue Book, but in a way that's open and that's efficient and that's, you know, has the right attitude and the right intention. And we just have to, we, ha- we have the vision that that can be accomplished. Now, it might end up taking some other kind of form, but this is sort of the proposal that we've made in the book as to what we think would work. And the bottom line is that eventually, if this were to happen, eventually the scientific community could, could um, be, you know, they, their attitudes would shift. I mean, if the U.S. government set this thing up, they're basically making the statement that there is a phenomenon here worthy of investigation. And for them to make that statement changes everything, as I see it. And eventually the scientific community could start looking at this without worrying about being ridiculed. Attitudes could shift over time, and resources could go into a much bigger investigation than we've ever seen before. That's what we're hoping for, and an internationally coordinated investigation. But the United States would play a prominent role in it. If you're offering up a solution to a perceived problem, uh, if you're perceiving this UFO issue as a problem, 
That must be informed by, even on the speculative level, uh, Leslie, some personal feeling of what this UFO reality is all about. I mean, I don't know if you're, if you're comfortable with, with, with speculating, but, I mean, you're perceiving this as a problem. So, right, perceiving it as a problem that the U.S. government basically, like we've discussed, you know, has been ignoring every single UFO event publicly anyway, and turning its back on it and not doing proper investigations and not dealing with safety issues and all the things we've been talking about. That is a problem. And the other problem, if you want to use the word, is just the mystery of what this phenomenon actually is. What is it? Where does it come from? Um, I think, you know, anybody who's touched on the issue at all wants to know the answer to that question. And I don't think we have a satisfactory answer to that yet. I think the big problem that I have with this, Leslie, is the entire, the entire issue is that it just, the bottom line seems to be, no matter what the evidence shows, the United States government will not acknowledge this issue. And I guess the other question in my mind is, what will it take? What event will it take? What kind of political pressure will it take? What kind of suggestions, as in your book, will it take for the government to at least acknowledge that this issue is there? Right now, they're not even acknowledging that it's there, no matter what the evidence shows. No, that's absolutely right. They're not. And I, you know, we, I mean, we're committed as a group, and these are you know, myself and the people I'm working with in the book and else outside of the book as well, to... But, you know, again, by getting this little office set up and doing it very quietly, I've talked to people about ways this can be done, that they're quiet and not with a lot of fanfare. Basically, the U.S. government would be making that statement, even if it never actually made the statement. Mm -hmm. It would be making that statement if it did set up this agency. And we're hoping that we can bring that about. And, you know, by just sort of rationally approaching them, it's time to do this, putting enough political pressure, all the various ways that we have, the people that I know they are in line that sort of want to help make this happen. We're going to give it our best shot, and I think if it does happen, what you have is the government making that acknowledgement that you just said it, it won't even make, yeah. even if it doesn't do it directly. Yeah. I think the other metaphor here to me is that I, I look at the situation internationally, as you outlined tonight, with Brazil and France and Denmark and all these other nations that have come forward and, and acknowledged the, the situation in the ways that they have, in their own unique ways. And it almost seems like the United States is a closed shop, and these international groups are knocking on the door of the United uh, States with cap in hand saying, oh, please, won't you please talk about this? I find that very condescending. And the whole American perception about all of this and the way they're not dealing with it is just basically a muddle of lies. And and uh, we're all standing around here waiting at the door for it to be opened. Yeah, I mean, you know, I still think that it can be. And um, the problem with the other governments face is, you know, I mean, I don't want to be condescending, but these governments have worked for decades and they have accumulated a tremendous amount of case information and it's been very, very helpful. But they are, have not been able to actually make the kind of breakthrough that we need you know, a major, major discovery, a major investigation that actually tells us what we're dealing with here. Individual countries just can't, haven't been able to so far do that on their own. What they want, and I've talked to these officials in these various countries who have written pieces for the book, they want the United States to participate because the bottom line is, you know, we haven't gotten, we haven't solved this problem yet. Mm -hmm. And we need the kind of power and resources that our government has to make that happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think that's, a, that's just the way it is. Now, we can keep on investigating cases forever, 
and we're not we're, we're not going to break through. A revolving I mean, door. Maybe you have some other ideas about that, but that's mm-hmm. what it seems mm-hmm. like to me. Yeah. And it, the U.S. government has the power to, to sort of change the whole landscape, and you know, and draw on resources mm-hmm. that could be put into a scientific investigation that could legitimize the whole thing for the for everyone. That I think could sort of jumpstart the whole thing and push it up to another level. One I, mean, la- I may be idealistic, but that's what I'm. Proposing. Not at all. Not at all. One last question to you, and I try to ask this of most of the guests that we have on here dealing with this whole bizarre issue is there are a lot of journalists out there that are they could be listening potentially out there and political figures that are out there would you just uh, for one moment to speak to them and and uh, sort of address what you feel they may have as um, sort of leverage or what they should be doing what they should be thinking about in terms of their responsibilities in journalism yeah i mean i you know i would hope that journalists would um you know look at the facts i mean again i don't i i think that my book really encapsulates the kind of information that a journalist can work with i mean i'm a journalist myself and i spent many years trying to bring forward the kinds of the kind of valid information that lends itself to journalism and i would just hope that journalists would take a look at it and that there are many journalists out there that have access to major news outlets that I don't have. I mean, I'm a freelancer. I'm an independent journalist. So if there are journalists that have access to media outlets such as, you know, papers like the Washington Post or, you know, big papers in Canada that, um, you know, have can open doors in a way that an independent person can't. I mean, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in journalism. And I would encourage journalism's journalists, to, if they don't know much about this, to please read the book, and then they might find certain things within it that they want to pursue, areas that they might want to dig into further. Um, and they may have access to a lot of stuff that I don't have access to, you know, because of the media outlets that they're associated with. So I, I would be so thrilled if journalists would start taking more of an interest in the subject. I mean, that's all I can say. And I, I also think that they would find it interesting. It's so fascinating. Um, is there a that, chill? Is there a chill factor with within uh, the news gathering organizations? Have you, you found? You mean sort of like a, a c- me making the reporters? Do you mean chill by what, what do you mean by that? You mean not just avoiding it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, I don't know any other journalists that. I mean, there there are some, but I think that journalists, most of the ones that I know of, you know, they're working for an, a news organization and they're assigned stories. Or they have a producer that, if they're in you know television or radio, that puts together shows for them, and it's it's much more complicated. I mean, they have jobs, they have things they're supposed to do as journalists, and so um, you know they don't have the time, they don't have the whatever it takes to be able to focus on this. What we need is some you know journalists like Seymour Hirsch to suddenly get captivated and want to probe into one aspect of this and really dig into it. And I think something like that could really uh, make some progress, you know, because I'm, I'm presenting cases that a lot of people already know about. What I'm doing is trying to bring the whole thing together within a narrative that's going to appeal to people who don't already know much about the subject. And um, I'm letting these people speak for themselves. I mean, that's a lot of what's unique about this book. But we need journalists that can dig a lot deeper and use their own connections and their own the power of their own media outlets to, to go much further with this, and I hope that happens. Well, you said that there's a uh, hundred billion stars in the Milky Way alone, and uh, I just can't help thinking that uh, there are people on one of the planets around 
one of those sons uh, in the same situation as we are wondering about the craft that are flitting around in their atmosphere. And I'm just hoping like hell, Leslie, that there's a person on that planet that's written a book like yours. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. And yeah, it really does it. It really uh, gives your imagination a lot to uh, deal with as well as your intellect, the subject matter. Leslie, thank you for this. Again, the website, ufosontherecord.com. And the book, Thanks a lot. UFOs, yep. Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. I hope to talk to you again. Thanks very much for having me. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, funny, uh, in, in closing, before we uh, welcome Jeff Peckman aboard to talk about his ballot initiative in Denver relating to UFOs and ETs, uh, think about what she said. Trying to convince journalists to dedicate time to focus on a story on an issue that could be, might be, probably is the most significant issue facing mankind. How do you get convinced to do that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it should be just plain obvious to do it. One would hope. All right. Uh, we'll, uh, as I say, welcome Jeff Peckman aboard when The Conspiracy Show continues on the other side. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Before we check in with Denver and the Extraterrestrial Affairs Commission, a rather historic initiative placed on the uh, the ballot in that city coming up in November. Let's uh, grab a couple of quick calls and uh, let's welcome aboard Nelson to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Nelson. Hey, how are you doing, Richard? Hey, it's our good friend Nelson Thal. How are you, my friend? Very good. How are Things are really cool this evening. Fall is Looks in the like air. Great, the UFO thing is really of interest to everybody. Well, how could it not be? I mean, whatever you might think of what the, 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 the reality of UFOs are, whether they're interdimensional, hyperdimensional, some sort of uh, uh, intergalactic, some type of a black, you know, government uh, black op uh, uh, operation, whatever you think, it's, it's, it's an important issue. It's a huge issue. Yeah, you know, my question to you, Rich, would be, um, uh, have, you, have the guys, these people, thought ever talked about these got these aliens being very imperialistic <clears throat> i mean like i think we've been watching them for 50 years now 45 years we've been watching the these ufos and uh, it seems like they don't want to come down and say hello but um uh if they're anything like man it sounds like they are like us uh, it means they're probably very imperialistic. Well, I, I, I think we are. I think it's a mistake to conclude that they are because they are technologically advanced. That they are likewise spiritually advanced. I don't think that necessarily washes. Uh, you know, if um, uh, I think it was Richard well, Dolan, can, can, the, can they not use the threat of the, the these? They could be a threat to the country's defense. So is that not a way of forcing the government to talk about it and expose it? The fact that it's a threat. Well, if it's a threat they can't do anything about, maybe that might explain why governments aren't willing to uh, t to talk about it. So they know that we could be under attack, but they're not saying anything because they don't want to cause panic. That's one explanation, Nelson. I think it's I think it's a reasonable one. 
Yeah. All right. What do you have coming up on uh, on Shock Talk on Thursday? Well, of course, we had the anniversary of 9/11, and you know, Richard, all the associations of engineers and and uh, pilots, etc. The old, old associations of the of these across the country have all come out, and you know given reports about how it was a controlled disintegration, obviously, uh, a controlled explosion, implosion. It was interesting that at the 9-11 anniversary, Richard, they had two beams for the World Trade Center, but they didn't have one for the Building 7. (laughs) And that says a lot, because they want us to forget about Building 7, don't they? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's starting. It's starting to come into the in, in, into a mass consciousness. I think uh, a little bit more. Uh, so the here, Association of Engineers have forced them to put another beam up representing Building Seven. So that's a, I think, a big development. And the fact that they didn't, they left it out, shows that uh, it, more of the cover up. All right. Continues. So uh, we'll look forward to that on Thursday night. Shock Talk with Bloom and yeah. Steel. ThatChannel.com and uh, Cloak and Dagger. Womansteel.com. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. All right, Nelson. Nine o'clock. Thanks, Richard. All right. Talk soon, my friend. All right. Uh, this November, a very, very interesting uh, ballot initiative in uh, Denver. And uh, my next guest is at the fore of that uh, initiative. Jeff Peckman is an American UFO disclosure activist. He's also a, he has been a political candidate for the Natural Law Party. He's an advocate for disclosure of UFO and extraterrestrial phenomena who gained media attention back in 2008 when he publicly displayed a video of a reported extraterrestrial in Denver, Colorado. And uh, he publicly screened the video back in uh, May of 2008 at the Metropolitan State College in Denver. And uh, the three-minute video contained images of a white creature with a balloon-shaped head and large dark eyes that blinked and looked through a window said to be eight feet above the ground. The video was said to have been made by Stan Romanek back in July of 2003 in Nebraska. And uh, we're happy to have Jeff Peckman on on, uh, The Conspiracy Show to talk about this ETA Commission, his efforts to get an Extraterrestrial Affairs Commission enacted in the city of Denver this coming November. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Victor, thanks for having me on. Terrific. Walk us through the uh, the, the process. Uh, give us the timeline of this Extraterrestrial Affairs Commission. How did it come about, and what's at stake in November? It came about because I just wanted to be a little helpful in getting the generating public awareness attracting uh, public awareness about uh, while two Stan Romanek's uh, evidence and other pe- the evidence of other people that uh, say they've had close encounters with the craft or with the extraterrestrial intelligent beings. And some many of those people that were at that press conference you just mentioned, they were invited just a few months earlier to hear Stan's entire presentation, and nobody showed up. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I gave them a pretty good hint of some spectacular stuff they'd be seeing, and and they weren't there. So that sort of moved me a little closer to starting this ballot initiative because I knew the media pays attention to ballot initiatives, primarily because their readers, their their audience, is going to vote on this issue, and that's exactly what happened. So I know I just did a very modest press release. Uh, I started the ballot initiative without telling the the news media. And it was discovered, and 
there were you know several weeks of interviews just from that uh, all over the world, and then uh, that kind of led into showing that piece of evidence because a few of the reporters asked me, well, you know, what convinced me to do this ballot initiative and what evidence had I seen? And I told them about uh, a wide range of things, but they picked up on this video, so they asked if they could see that. And it was just a very innocent uh, gesture. I said, well, I'll, I'll see if, if Stan, you know, would, would show it to you. It was just that simple. And then the media, news media itself, built this up into a huge event of, you know, ultimate proof of alien invasion and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, we showed up at that college campus, and there were you know, all the news vans with their antennas, you know, stuck up in the air. And I thought something, uh, there was some terrorist attack or something going on. Turns out they were there for our press conference. So we showed that, and uh, that became that the story that came out of that for the Denver Post. It broke page view records at denverpost.com, and it constituted the top four of the top five stories of the week for the Rocky Mountain News, the other major newspaper here. And, of course, it was all over the world. And, uh, you know, got us on Larry King and then me on David Letterman and Geraldo. And so one of the last things you touched on was how to attract the media's attention to this issue. And that has certainly happened with this ballot initiative. What's at stake in November is uh, really just, you know, the result of what happens when you put a lot of truth about something in front of a population that has to vote on it. They have to make a conscious decision. And that's never been done before with the general public. I think that's been the missing ingredient. So it is kind of an experiment, and we'll just see how they respond. The most important thing is that they read the voter education material that we've been creating that's on the website, extracampaign.org, just to get a lot of facts about the, the government cover-up, the media's role, the CIA, uh, all the different whistleblowers. You know, there's probably 50 people referenced in this material. Uh, the nukes, you know, the UFOs at the nuclear missile bases, um, presidents who have seen UFOs, one reported it, promises to reveal this information. So it's a, it's a, it's a condensed version of a lot of what we know from the Disclosure but Project, if, I, if, Leslie Keene's book. So that's what's at stake, just seeing what happens. If the people of Denver vote yes to the ETA commission, the formation of an ETA commission, then what happens? Then within 30 days, uh, the mayor has to approve seven volunteer members who must satisfy a set of criteria. They, in general, they have to have some knowledge, some expertise in this field of UFOs and extraterrestrial uh, visitors, and uh, then they meet. They have certain duties. They meet. They try. They would collect the best available, credible evidence that we've been visited by extraterrestrial intelligent beings, and they would put that evidence on the city government website. That's a key part of this. And they would also try to assess the risks and the benefits of interacting with these people from other planets. They would set up, try to set up some protocols so that if a person wants to report something, they know who to report it to without being laughed at. So they'll have some duties. They'll be able to raise grants, give some donations to fund their activities. This does not come out of taxpayer money. It's funded entirely by grants, gifts, and donations without any requirement of a fiscal outlay from the city budget. Okay, Jeff. Does the, is it like a board of directors kind of thing, or just the people who are assigned to this committee? Is that how it works? 
Well, there, there's seven members, and they okay. would just, you know, they know what their duties would be, and they would just organize to accomplish, uh, you know, to fulfill mm-hmm. those duties. A key question, do you have to be a citizen of Denver or a citizen of Colorado or an American citizen to be one of those volunteers? Uh, no, you don't, and it's specifically worded that a member of this commission can participate. They can be from anywhere in the universe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got that from the David Letterman uh, release agreement that said mm-hmm. they could use my photo anywhere in the universe. So I thought, well, they're thinking pretty big. <laughs> Are you volunteering, Victor? Don't be shy. I think you're sort of waltzing around the issue. You want to volunteer for this commission, don't you? Well, actually, uh, the, uh, I, the answer to that question would be yes, but... Um, it, I, there, I asked that question for a specific reason, because uh, the, the kinds of people that uh, the people of Denver um, will be allowing to be on that committee uh, could be a very, very influential and very, very powerful group of people. And, uh, and let's cut to the chase here. We've got, and I know Jeff is very strong on this, he wants this to be an, uh, a strong grassroots um, uh, initiative, a movement, whatever you want to call it, and you want it to come from the bottom up. Let's make no mistake about that, right, Jeff? That's right. And right now, uh, the League of Denver League of Women Voters, and of course across the country, the League of Women Voters is a very important uh, part of our democracy here. They have created a summary of all the ballot initiatives and statements for and against. And so I submitted five reasons why people should vote for it. And they're handing that out all over the city. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of grassroots stuff that's starting but, to happen. But this would be, I'm, I'm guessing... Uh, this would be the first such commission anywhere in the in the world, right? And for a municipal or any any form of government, would it not? As far as I know. I mean, so if you've got that toehold, why wouldn't you just load up that commission with, you know, I don't know, Bud Hopkins and Stephen, Dr. Stephen Greer and Victor Vigiani and Jeff Peckman, for that matter? I mean, I don't qualify. You don't. I set the bar high enough. <laughs> so I wouldn't be asked to be at committee meetings. <laughs> okay, but you know what I'm saying. Like, why, yeah. why why wouldn't you just then try and arrange to have the like the the blue chip of all blue chip panels representing that ETA commission if it's the first one on the planet? Well, they could. I mean, I, I wrote it to have that much flexibility, but to set the bar very high. So in the in the description, you know, one person has to have a. A, a Ph.D. in the physical sciences, another in the social sciences, another has to have had, you know, interactions with whistleblowers and written a book, and there's a medical doctor. So there are some criteria uh, specified in there. And, uh, you know, all those people that you mentioned could potentially be a part of this. And that's the regular volunteer members. There's really no limit on non or irregular non-regular members volunteers who you know could come in as a consultant for a particular purpose uh, in one on one meeting and so what's you know what's going on in the military so maybe we just have somebody from the military represented in a particular meeting so really it's pretty unbounded so let's look at this constitutionally and you know November 2nd within uh, the vote happens and this thing goes through you know hopefully and within 30 days, you've got this all set up, and it really starts to work. Constitutionally, Jeff, this could be the biggest thing happen in the United States since the, the writing of the Constitution. You've got this group of people who now have this, uh, have the authority uh, by the people, of, uh, you know, invested in them by, by the people of Denver, to go and examine the UFO issue uh, out loud. 
and as Leslie was saying earlier, to, just to give people a safe space in which to operate and talk about this thing. And there's not a darn thing the government can do about it. Exactly, and that is the power of initiative. I mean, the First Amendment, you know, guarantees us the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, and the first power of the Colorado Constitution is the power of initiative. The governor cannot veto things passed by the people. The mayor cannot veto ordinances passed by the people. So it does carry a lot of weight. Does this commission, would this commission have subpoena power? Uh, not, I don't believe it would. No, it's just, it, whatever its duties and powers are, are limited to the language of the ballot initiative, and subpoena power was not one of those. Can I ask why not? I didn't think about it at the time. <laughs> would... But, I mean, could they? Le- could a municipal body legally? I don't. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I should brush up on my civics course. But could they subpoena? Because I would think that would be a useful tool if you really want to get to the any sort of arrive at any sort of truth or conduct some sort of an investigation. You need you need to be able to tell, uh, you know, the the local director of the uh, the FAA out there in Denver. No, you will appear before this committee. Well, I don't think that this commission has that power, but it doesn't mean that someone else in the city government could not do that in order to to help achieve some goal of the commission, especially if it involves something that the city is responsible for, like public safety. Mm -hmm. True enough. All right. Uh, Jeff, uh, sit tight. We'll be back in a moment to uh, continue to delve into this extraordinary ballot initiative. In two months, November of this year, the people of Denver will vote on whether or not the city council there should form an extraterrestrial affairs commission. No joke, folks. This is really happening. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Jeff Peckman is uh, with us. And again, the ballot initiative would be, uh, before the voters of Denver this November, would be to form an extraterrestrial affairs commission. And I think uh, I don't think Victor, is a man, uh, uh, Victor Vigiani in studio guest is exaggerating when he says that this has tremendous constitutional Repercussions. Imagine having a, um, a a city commission charged with investigating the uh, the ET phenomena. Now, a couple of quick questions. Uh, Victor and I were discussing off air. You know, if there is this conspiracy um, by some shadowy uh, element to keep a lid on the UFO, uh, the truth about UFOs, I can't see them standing for this sort of initiative, uh, Jeff. First of all, are they utilizing those? those voting machines in the municipal election there, because those can be easily tampered with. It's both mail-in votes, and it seems at least half the people are voting by mail in recent elections, and uh, they, they do use some kind of voting machines. Okay. Uh, second question. Is this initiative likely to catch on elsewhere? Do you have any, uh, any uh, interest in other municipalities to start the same sort of an initiative? There has been interest expressed in some preliminary steps, uh, well, it's been over a year ago, in Phoenix area, Sacramento, 
some inquiry in uh, Los Angeles, and then recently somebody approached me from Wisconsin who was a, an attorney, and I was even asked by somebody in Australia about the possibility. But really, people just have to go to their local election office and say, do we even have this right of initiative? Not everybody does in the United States. Any polling, uh, uh, any tracking on, uh, on uh, where this uh, initiative stands with the voters? Not from my side, not from the campaign. I think that at some point the newspapers and uh, local news, you know, radio and TV will do some kind of polls as it starts getting a little further down in uh, the campaign. About the middle of, well, in a few weeks, there's a major ballot initiative uh, event. We won't be represented. It's all state issues, but our, our material might be there. And, and uh, other, other things are happening. You know, Jaime Masson down in Mexico, he's going to air an interview on his show after the big soccer game, and he's going to encourage all the Hispanic, the Spanish-speaking community to tell all of their friends and relatives in Denver to vote for this. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, support is coming from different directions, and uh, there's no polling that I know of yet. You've done a lot of work, uh, you know, sort of at the ground roots level, the grassroots level, rather, to, uh, to really get this in, in front of the voters. Tell us about some of the things that you've done. Uh, well, creating this eight-page document is probably the most significant because it draws on a lot of the work that's been done by other people advocating for disclosure. We've got an artist who's going to create this fabulous poster, and his art, you know, he's well-known. His art has been in the Denver Art Museum. Uh, there's been a pink UFO music video, which was done by a local hip-hop art uh, musician, to highlight the hidden uh, suppressed technology that can cure cancer, uh, just the whole cover-up. So, you know, in every battle, this is a battle for truth, and in every battle you've got regular army and generals and intelligence people, and then you've got peasants with pitchforks and people writing songs to inspire the troops. And you know, So that's the level that this is happening at. And it's, it's a lot of fun. There was a guy who got, you know, a major uh, picture in the newspaper just because he was out on the street holding up this sign that said UFO. And then it said it was in support of the campaign. This was some months ago. I have no idea who that person is. <laughs> you know? This is the spontaneous creative stuff that people just do because they just want to jump into something great and historic and potentially life-changing and planet-changing. Jeff, uh, I'll, I'll make a pledge. We'll have you on the program before the November vote. Just an update. Perhaps by that time there will be some polling numbers and we can... We can uh, talk about this again, but in the in the short time that remains, uh, I, I have to ask you about the status of the uh, the Stan Romanek video again. This is uh, purportedly something this gentleman from Nebraska shot back in 2003 of an alien that seemed to be peeking in his uh, kitchen window or, or, or something. You screened the video at the Metropolitan State College in Denver. Um, there was supposed to be a documentary made about it. It's back in 2008, I think. I don't believe it's been released. Give us an update on the Stan Romanek alien video. Um, it was aired. ABC purchased the right, the exclusive rights to air it, and they had tied it up for about a year. They aired that. Uh, he's had it posted on his website, stanromanek.com. I don't know. So, you know, it's been available already in that okay. way. There's a whole lot of new evidence that's being put together in a different by somebody else in a different documentary. You know, documentary makers come and go, and... You know, there's complications and things happen, but uh, that's still in progress, in process. So I'm not really closely connected to that. Uh, you know, I'm doing just the, kind of the general grassroots stuff. I, 
did an interview with a college station today, and I left them with three questions. They want to know why college students at that college should pay attention to this initiative. It wasn't even in Denver. I said, first of all, they're going to be graduating probably after disclosure happens and when there's open contact, people from that college. And I want them to ask, you know, uh, to vote. Put a poll on your website there, you know, how would you vote on this? And if you're in college, you know, would you be willing to be on this delegation? If an extraterrestrial delegation wanted to visit your campus, would you want to be on the delegation to greet them and tour them around? And what would you show them? And these are the kinds of questions that I think college students and high school students should be thinking about. And it's really not about any particular person's evidence, this ballot initiative. I just represent the general need to have a citizen's task force start this because nobody in the federal government is starting this, and it has to start somewhere. So Jeff, we're just starting in Denver. Jeff, give us a website. Extracampaign.org. Extra. campaign. Org. Look at the voter education page. It's mind-blowing stuff that we've got posted there. It's a lot of good material. All right. We'll check in again before November, Jeff. Great. Thanks so much. All right. So, uh, indeed, uh, potentially uh, revolutionary, really. I'm on the edge of my seat. It, it sounds... Uh, he, he sort of downplays it a little bit. He, he sort of talks... Uh, he just doesn't really, uh, I don't know, get at it in a way that politically i think i might i might do it but then again that's another story but he he's he's almost tongue in cheek about it but there's such yes. a serious almost such a serious side to this thing that boy if it happens we could really see something occur here well are, uh, are you would you contemplate uh, as um, media relations director at exopolitics canada starting a similar initiative here in toronto Mike Bird and I are planning a few things within the next little while, and we've got discussions coming up about an event here in Toronto. Um, and Mike and I have talked about the, sort of the, the legal aspects of of where this might go. And I've I brought up two things. First of all, at the at the municipal level, the possibilities, okay, of presenting this, and then the other the other aspect of it is uh, looking at it from a legal point of view, and taking this issue to court, and what kinds of uh, options are open to us to present this in a court of law. So we've we've talked about those two options. All right. Well, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. Can you find a lawyer that'd be willing to work that case pro bono? I know one. I know two, actually. Really? Interesting. Oh, stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. All right, our thanks to Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials, Go On the Record. The website, ufosontherecord.com. And uh, Jeff Peckman, of course, good luck to him and his UFO initiative and the uh, ballot in the Denver municipal election. And his website extracampaign.org Victor Vigiani of course as always thank you exopoliticscanada.ca com dot com right. my apologies yeah. exopoliticscanada.com and of course Dan Ellison thank you next week interesting show on the CIA connections with the Obama family there's a story that just won't go away And I won't let it. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.